Section 17 of Mimic Live. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Unknown Tragedian by Anna Koromawit Ritchie. Chapter 1. Oh, I could tell you, but let it be. Horatio, I am dead. Thou livest. Report me in my cause aright to the unsatisfied. Hamlet. Will you give me your candid opinion? It's a little short of suicide. You have it. But, returned the aged man, who had demanded that rarest of commodities, a candid opinion, and who, having received it, was ready, after the fashion of the world, to question its truth, but you do not know how immovably her mind is fixed on this farewell. You are not an actor. You can have no adequate conception of the reluctance with which we lay down our dramatic mantle. Even when our shoulders are too feeble to carry it longer, how fiercely we wrestle against the infirmities of age, which admonish us that the hour of our scenic triumph is nearly expended. You sneer. That's natural. For none but an actor can comprehend what the stage is to those whose hairs, as mine and my wife's, have grown gray in the blaze of the footlights. She made her debut when she was so young that she cannot even remember the occasion, and now she is seventy, just seven years my junior. How, then, am I to forbid this leave-taking of the public in whose presence her life has ebbed away, upon whose favor she has existed. If science may be trusted, her disease must end fatally, coolly replied the phlegmatic Dr. Duff. The exertion of a last effort on stage will shorten her days, but, on the other hand, the agitation consequent upon thwarting her wishes may produce the same result. I leave you to choose between the evil. Then my choice is main, said Mr. Ruthven. She shall appear. This farewell to her is rendering a, an account of her public stewardship before she resigns her office forever. If it be true that I must lose her, though I cannot think it, let me not be haunted by the recollection that I denied her these last wishes. Mr. Ruthven rose and, followed by the physician, entered the adjoining apartment. In an armchair propped up by pillows sat Mrs. Ruthven. Even a close observer would not have pronounced that she had, by many years, reached the age which her husband had just declared. Is there some invisible Medea that waits upon the steps of actors, and, when the frosty hand of age is laid upon them to congeal their blood, who pours into their shrunken veins, as did that niece of Circe in the old days of Jason, the juices of precious herbs which renews their youth. It is a singular fact in dramatic history that, in spite of the late hours, endless exposures, incessant fatigue, constant excitement, and systematically irregular habits, performers preserve a rare degree of personal freshness and intellectual vigor until nature reaches the very verge of her confine. Whence comes the talisman with which they, despite, of age's fiat, resist decay? 
This lingering of youth in age is, perhaps, attributable to the daily and mental, physical exercise of all their faculties. It is through disuse or disease, rather than by nature's law, that the powers of men are early impaired. The traces of severe suffering were apparent upon Mrs. Ruthven's countenance, but they had not wholly dethroned and banished the beauty for which it was once famed. The rose of youth had not dropped off all its leaves. Fever lent its repairing glow to the faded cheeks, its delusive light to the once brilliant eyes. These, and a bright, animated expression, concealed the thefts of time. Mrs. Ruthven was a daughter of an Edinburgh manager. Before she had reached her thirtieth year, she was distinguished for her consummate skill in the personation of comic and pathetic old women. This was the line she preferred. No petty, unartistic vanity marred the fidelity of her delineations. Her personal attractions were unconcernedly obscured beneath a series of well-executed disguises. She was a perfect mistress of the effects produced by elaborately painted wrinkles, snowy locks, the dowry of a second head, antiquated costume, and a tottering gait. It was, however, somewhat strange that in her youth she assumed, with all alacrity, all venerable roles. But after her years numbered half a century, she evinced a strong preference for the most juvenile heroines in her repertoire. Mr. Ruthven was one of the leading members of her father's company, the representative of all the heartless, remorseless, hideous stage villains, for a good villain if we may be excused for the joining of opposites which theatrical parlance unites to convey its meaning, is one of the necessary concomitants of a successful play. Mr. Ruthven became such an adept in portraying the different shades of knavery that the audience constantly confounded the man with the characters he assumed. It cordially detested him, and not unfrequently visited the unoffending actor with signal marks of disapprobation, but the hiss bestowed on the villain is a demonstration very nearly as complimentary as applause lavished on the hero. Mr. Ruthven wooed and won the manager's daughter. Their positions in her father's theater remained unaltered by this union until his death. Mr. and Mrs. Ruthven then traveled in the provinces for a few seasons and finally crossed the channel and settled in Dublin. They had now been members of the Dublin Theatre Royal for fifteen years. Husband and wife were alike enamored of their profession. Though no longer spurred to its pursuance by necessity's sharp pinch, it possessed allurements to their minds which few considerations could have compelled them to resist. Upon them both the infirmities of age had crept very slowly. These were chiefly apparent in the diminished physical strength and impaired memory. Loss of memory it could not be termed, for the language of numberless characters which they had enacted in their youth could be recalled without effort. But to commit the context of recent productions now became a Sisyphus-like labor, ever frustrated the instant it seemed accomplished every page in memory's huge volume appeared to be filled the aged pair were forced to wing as it is called all new parts 
that is, con them at the wings until summoned to appear upon stage, and then resume the study at every exit. Even this drawback could not render their profession less fascinating. They resided in a handsome but unostentation mansion in Marin Square. The smiles of five children had brightened their hearth for a short space, and then the homes of four were exchanged for a heavenlier abode. One daughter remained. Elma, her name was a compound of Elizabeth and Mary, the respected appellations of her mother and grandmother, had just completed her twenty-second year. Her infant feet had trodden the boards for the first ten years of her life. The ensuing ten were passed in studious seclusion of a justly celebrated London seminary. Her twentieth birthday had brought her back to the paternal roof. That she should become an actress was certainly not a matter of necessity, but to the minds of her parents it was a matter of course. She regarded the stage as her legitimate and most desirable destination. Elma did not inherit their attachment for the theatrical profession, nor could a fondness for dramatic representations be engrafted upon her mind by stage triumphs. She shrank from the display of her talents for the entertainment of an incongruous crowd. She felt humiliated when she reflected that the privilege of gazing upon her face and passing judgment upon her endowments could be purchased. Such thoughts never disturb the brain of a genuine and enthusiastic artist who wholly separates herself from her vocation, divides her actual life from her stage existence, but Elma had not been gifted by this faculty. There is a certain affection very prevalent among performers which induces the larger portion to affirm that they detest the stage, hate acting, that they can't abide plays. This assumed contempt is looked upon as a mark of theatrical aristocracy. When Elma communicated to her parents her repugnance towards the career they designated for her, they imagined that she had adopted the cant of the theatre and laughed at her declaration. She perceived how deeply they would have been wounded, how seriously disappointed, had they believed her distaste unfeigned, and submitted without further argument. Filial devotion was one of the most strongly developed attributes of her nature. To suffer in silence was less painful than to oppose the wishes of her parents. Had they not called her the balm of their age, the sole thread of their own lives, that balm should not, by her self-will, be turned to gall, nor that tender thread be changed to an iron band tightening around and eating into the hearts that cherished her. Thus, she became an actress. She had made a successful debut at the Dublin Theatre Royal. For two years she discharged the duties of a leading lady in that company. But to return to Miss Ruthven, as her husband and physician entered her chamber, she asked in a cheerful tone, Well, doctor, do you intend to humor me? I have left the decision with Mr. Ruthven. And as Arthur is not in the habit of denying me anything, we may look upon the farewell question as settled. Is it not so, Arthur? Dr. Duff thinks there is no danger, Mary, replied her husband, as he carefully arranged the pillows that supported her and seated himself by her side. Danger? The bow is bent and drawn, the shaft must fly. 
That much he has already intimated, answered Mrs. Ruthven. And I have already said amen, if it must be, and only ask that you will not refuse to let me bid my friends adieu. At that moment, a young girl entered the chamber. Her exquisitely rounded form was several inches above the Medici height. Her half-stately bearing, her queen-like tread, the classic pose of her head on her shoulders, the chiseled regularity of her features befitted a Juno. But the face itself was more suited to a Madonna. If the arbitrary old masters would allow us to imagine a Madonna with a rich olive complexion and shining dark hair wound in a coronet shape around a broad, low brow. She bowed to the doctor, quietly removed her bonnet, drew a chair to the invalid, and fixed upon her a countenance, a pair of soft brown eyes, sweet, earnest eyes of grace, with an unspoken inquiry. Elma's silence had always been a tongue as eloquent as the thoughts had been made vocal. The mother replied to her daughter's look, "'Yes, I am better, darling, a great deal better, "'for they will let me have my own way. "'The farewell is settled upon.' "'Oh, no, mother, my father, you will not consent. "'Doctor, surely you will not permit this in my mother's state,' "'pleaded Alma. "'Alma!' exclaimed Mrs. Ruthven in a troubled tone, "'but her husband interrupted her. "'Alma, do not disturb your mother's serenity.' You shall not comprehend her feelings. Her earnest desire shall be gratified. Mrs. Ruthven was holding her husband's hand in one of hers, and her daughter's in the other. She drew both fondly to her bosom. The remonstrance that rose to Elma's lips remained unuttered. Mr. Ruthven says you expect the great tragedian. Do you really think that he will be here for your farewell? asked Dr. Duff. Mr. Mortimer is so uncertain, so eccentric, that he can never be depended upon. The rest of the world may have no cause to rely upon him, said Mrs. Ruthven, but we have, for here is metal more attractive than the whole world can offer. She smiled upon her daughter as she spoke. But the delicate bloom on Elma's cheek deepened not to crimson, as it was wont to do on maidens' faces at the sound of a name inscribed in the innermost center of their hearts. Her eyes sought the ground, but their lids veiled a look of pain rather than one of sweet confusion. Here is Mer's letter in answer to mine, quaint as himself. Read it, continued Mrs. Ruthven, handing a note to the doctor. He perused aloud. Newcastle on the Tyne, October 6th, Eighteen. What so poor a man as Hamlet is may do, to express his love and friending to you, God willing, shall not lack. Gerald Mortimer. Those were the only words the paper contained. The minds of actors are so often richly stored with poetic lore that their lips borrow the language of dramatists almost unconsciously. The student of Shakespeare, in particular, finds his wondrous, teeming treasury, every passion, every emotion, every aspiration, almost every situation in which humanity can be thrown, clothed with fitting and forcible expression. 
truly has a humbler minstrel saying that words of power flung from Shakespeare's bolder hand went vibrating through all the land and found in every heart a tone that seemed an echo of their own. Mortimer was an acknowledged devotee at the shrine of this Apollo of the drama and constantly sounded notes from his lyre in the strains of everyday life. The history of Gerald Mortimer was enveloped in an impenetrable mystery. Five years previous to the period of rewrite, a star suddenly burst upon the dramatic firmament of Dublin, and the gazing crowd sank down with involuntary homage. Whence came this potent magician? What is his history? Has he worn the buskin before? These were questions no one could answer. Gerald Mortimer took his audience by storm, towered above criticism, and in a single night leapt to the drama's highest eminence. He was eagerly sought by managers throughout Great Britain. In obeying or declining their summons, he appeared to be actuated solely by caprice. His fame reached London. Offers from Drury Lane, Covent Garden, the Haymarket, the Princesses poured in upon him. All solicitations from the metropolis were briefly declined. No reason was vouchsafed. It was generally acceded that the name of Gerald Mortimer was assumed for stage purposes. There were numberless rumors afloat concerning the tragedian's probable parentage. Many asserted that noble blood flowed in his veins. Others soared higher and whispered strange tales of the devotion of one of the England's kings to an actress. If majestic presence an eye like Mars to threaten or command, a brow shadowed by Hyperion's curls, were insignias of illustrious blood, he bore about him his patent of nobility. Certes, his name stood high on nature's peerage roll, if upon no other. From his earliest acquaintance with Mr. and Mrs. Ruthven, Mortimer entertained for them a venerating esteem. In their presence, he often laid aside his grave demeanor, habitual reserve, and laconic intercourse. Their devotion to their art, which he confessedly shared, was perhaps the first uniting link of sympathy. A stronger chain was forged when Elma appeared before him. Admiration quickly mellowed into attachment. Mortimer, before he addressed the young girl, declared his hopes to her approving parents. In that avowal, he confided a portion of his own history, enough to remove all scruples from their minds. His confidence was kept sacred even from their daughter. If he were blessed in winning her affections, the veil that obscured his past career would be torn away before he claimed her hand. That promise was all-sufficient. Mrs. Ruthven earnestly desired that the evening upon which she resigned her stage honors might be commemorated by one of the powerful dramatic efforts of her most valued friend. She had pinned him her wishes and had received by return of mail the brief but expressive reply by which Dr. Duff had just perused. After consultation with the manager, the farewell benefit, so it was called, was arranged to take place at the close of the ensuing week. 
Mortimer was duly appraised. His answer was concentrated in two sentences. I shall be with you. Part Damon. G.M. Mrs. Ruthven's forte was comedy. She selected Mrs. Malaprope in Sheridan's play, The Rivals, for her last assumption. Mortimer never cast aside the scepter of tragic state to don the cap and bells. He would appear in the part of Damon and Pythias, which was to precede the comedy. The Dublin theatrical world was thrown into a state of high excitement by the announcement of the proposed farewell. The night would be a memorable epic in the dramatic annals. The morning of the benefit arrived. Rehearsal passed off without Mortimer. He often dispensed with its ceremonies. Actors are usually very tenacious about the sides they occupy, the exunts and entrances of those who are performing with them. The unexpected change of a situation to which they have been accustomed will sometimes obliterate from their minds the context of the play. But whenever Mortimer was asked by a member of a company, on which side do you wish me to enter, his invariable reply was, wherever you like. I shall find you. On several occasions, when public expectation was raised to an unusual pitch, Mortimer had failed to appear. He never condescended to account for his absence. The manager who ventured to remonstrate was silenced by a haughty request to name his losses. Enormous penalties were paid by the tragedian without discussion. As the protracted rehearsal drew to a close, the actors whispered their doubts of Mortimer's coming. The manager exhibited his anxiety by unwanted irritability, and even Elma and her father began to be alarmed. Mrs. Ruthven was not present. After rehearsal, Mr. Ruthven hastened to the hotel, where the tragedian usually lodged, to learn if he had arrived. Elma returned home alone. Her hand was on the door of her mother's sitting-room, when a sound from within arrested her. Those deep, rich tones could belong to no voice but Mortimer's. Her mind was relieved of one anxiety, and yet she hesitated, as though another had usurped its place. The soft brightness of her countenance, which might aptly be likened to the subdued light of the moon, was under an eclipse as she entered. Mortimer rose eagerly, and the hand she offered was clasped somewhat more warmly than mere friendly courtesy warranted. She released it with a look of distress rather than embarrassment, as she said, "'Everybody will be so glad you have come. They feared at the theatre that you would not be there.' "'And is Elma included in the everybody who is glad that I have come?' "'Of course.' Your mother had no fears that I would prove faithless in my word. Were you as confident? I hoped I could not tell, but you must not expect everyone to have the unbounded confidence in you that my mother has. Elma concluded her sentence in as sprightly a tone as she could command. Mortimer resumed his seat without removing his dark, penetrating eyes from her countenance. "'Will your father be here soon, my love?' asked her mother. "'He went to inquire for Mr. Mortimer, but here is my father.' Mr. Ruthven and Mortimer greeted each other heartily. "'Sit down, all of you,' said Mrs. Ruthven. 
I have one rehearsal more to go through, and that will be the last. Our friends will expect a few parting words tonight. I have just written down my valedictory. Listen, little audience, and I will read to you. They gathered around her, and she read, in a faint, tremulous voice, from the paper in her hand. She briefly summed up the events of a life which had, in public service, flown, from the hour when childhood's lisping tongue first became the interpreter of the poet's language, even to this, when the hand of disease had seized her and age stood ready to place its paralyzing seal upon her lips, then gushed forth a torrent of thanks, pent up by an adieu. Her husband bowed his head and hid his face in his hands. Elma, as she listened, shook the holy water from her heavenly eyes. Mortimer had risen and walked to the window. When he returned, the many-colored iris around his eye betrayed that nature would not be defrauded of her custom in spite of manhood's shame. Mrs. Ruthven fell back exhausted. Then, as she marked the signs of dolor in the little group before her, she rallied her fugitive faculties. Come, come, good people, don't weep before time. No crying at rehearsal, you know. Now let me lie down. Gerald, give me your arm. Arthur is hardly young enough to support me, for I have grown as old as Sibylla within the last month, and I doubt whether Sibylla was half as decrepit. With the tenderness of a son, the dark-browed tragedian supported the aged actress to her chamber. Elma accompanied them. Now leave me to myself, my children. The mother gave affectionate emphasis to the last word. Mortimer turned to depart, but Elma lingered by her mother's couch. Not until Mrs. Ruthven, regardless of her daughter's soliciting look, repeated the request that she returned with Mortimer to the drawing-room. Mr. Ruthven was no longer there. He had retired to deal with grief alone. Few men were better fitted to captivate a woman's heart and compel its deep fountains of devotion to gush forth responsive to his will than Gerald Mortimer. He possessed that persuasive eloquence that enthralls the ear, that impressive earnestness which fixes every wandering thought, that reverence of manner towards the weaker sex which lures it to forget man's actual superiority and feel itself the stronger, and, most potent of all, that considerate tenderness which recognizes that womanhood is dowried with sufferings from which he is exempt, to render her existence sacred in the eyes of man. "'Your mother is failing fast, Elma,' said he, when they had resumed their seats. "'Very fast, and tonight how I dread it. But no persuasions could induce her to forego this farewell. She loves her profession so passionately. It is so enigmatical.' "'Enigmatical to your mind, Elma, where there is no answering chord, but it quickly translates itself to mine, which has strings to respond to this too earthly music. Yet your unaffected distaste for the stage only commands my admiration. It hardly deserves the name of distaste. I have experienced a sort of pleasure in its personations, but my imagination pictures a more delightful mode of life. I am lamentably deficient in ambition. I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a queen of infinite space. 
my throne a cheerful hearthstone, my scepter too unpoetic a household badge to bear mentioning, a serene seclusion, a holy round of daily duties. Elma paused abruptly, as though the picture she was painting might reveal too many hidden thoughts. An actor's wife need not perforce be an actress, replied Mortimer pointedly. Elma turned away. Do not fear, Elma. I will not press my suit until you grant me permission. One single word silences me forever. My happiness could not be purchased by your misery. I am content to know that this white wonder is not promised to any other. And he took her hand, which indeed was as soft as any dove's down and as white as it. It is not promised, she answered, but the hand was withdrawn. And your heart, Elma, that has chosen no lord. A blush that had stolen its hue from the sunset sky now suffused her countenance as she faltered out. You question me strangely. You... There was a suppressed emotion, a calmness almost terrifying in Mortimer's tone as he interrupted her. Be frank with me, Elma although your words must pierce every sense, enter like daggers in my ears, and cut my heart in twain, though all my future prove builded on sand and crumble at your feet, yet tell me truly, mercilessly, if you love another. Alma shrank away from his gaze, as though she would evade the lightning's scathing. What cause have I given you for such a suspicion? no cause nor have i ever stooped to suspicion i ask the question inadvertently i make no complaint of your reserve your coolness for perhaps it deserves that name i can exist upon the assurance that your heart is free at this crisis mr ruthven entered the room did mortimer note elma's look of relief did he remark on the polarity with which she busied herself upon some feminine trifles pertaining to her theatrical wardrobe? Could he fail to lack her presence when she thought him absorbed in conversation with her father and softly glided from the apartment? Elma's upright mind would never have premeditatedly allowed her to be placed in her present position towards Mortimer. He had poured out his own wealth of passion and claimed no return. He was satisfied to woo with Jacob-like patience if the jewel of his soul enriched no other bosom. Elma had not, therefore, been called upon to fan or extinguish a flame so self-existent, nor could she have overthrown the cherished hopes of her parents without a pang too severe to be needlessly encountered. Mortimer's high gifts excited her admiration, his magnanimity won her esteem, and, in a nature truly feminine, esteem is ever mingled with some degree of affection, but he had failed to inspire her with all-engrossing love. And why? She had scarcely acknowledged the impediment to herself. The performances of the evening commenced with the drama of Damon and Pythias, the clever production of John Bainham, a youthful Irish dramatist. Mortimer enacted Damon, Mr. Ruthven, the tyrant Dionysus, and Elma Calanthe, the betrothed of Pythias. 
As Mrs. Ruthven did not appear until the first play was concluded, her husband and daughter were compelled to leave her at an early hour. The thronged audience overflowed upon the stage. Chairs were arranged to receive them in front of the proscenium, and the entrances behind the scenes were so densely crowded that the performers could scarcely force their way. Not a foot's space throughout the theater remained unoccupied. Hundreds never even caught a glimpse of the stage. Pressibility and vivacity of the Irish character are peculiarly inspiring to actors and call forth their highest powers. No audience ever responded more instantaneously to noble and heroic sentiments, or was more quickly penetrated by the touches of genuine pathos, or evinced a keener sense of the humorous. Mortimer's delineations always excited their wildest enthusiasm. We will not attempt to describe the boisterous exhibition of delight with which he was saluted when he stood before them as Damon. To an onlooker, it seemed as though their manifestations could only end in the galleries descending upon the stage and bearing him about on their shoulders. But the tragedian never once bent his stately head while they vented clamor from their throats. His lips curled with a slight expression of scorn. If ambition had ever made him covet these evidences of popularity, they became worthless in his eyes the moment they were gained. Long live the star of the world! Blessings be on the bones of his body and the, all the hairs of his head! Never was the likes of him seen! These and similar ejaculations mingled with the uproar. At the first majestic uplifting of his hand, silence fell upon all around, like the sudden stilling of tempestuous waves. He spoke. The words rolled from his lips in a gush of mellifluous sound that seemed the mingling of trumpet and bugle tones. They stirred or melted, fired or calmed the hearers at will. Mortimer's imposing presence dignified, ennobled, idealized the most insignificant character he assumed. But to such a role as the self-sacrificing, warlike daemon, he imparted a heroic grandeur that was indescribable. At one moment he plunged into the profoundest abysses of passion and brought their strong workings to view. The next his melting tenderness struck the rock of stoniest hearts and sent its waters to the subdued eyes. Damon's soul-harrowing parting with his wife, his fury with his freedmen, his thrilling meeting with Pythias upon the scaffold, were almost terrific in their sublime intensity. Yet, while the actor seemed to hold the heartstrings of the audience in his hands, while he strained them to agony at pleasure, he either was not or affected not to be moved by his own personation. He compelled those who occupied the stage with him to believe that his most powerfully portrayed emotion was a counterfeit, that the painting of a sorrow, a face without a heart. While the spectators cheered until they were hoarse, the stoical tragedian, in a tone of irony, uttered some humorous sarcasm which excited the uncontrollable merriment of the players, a mirth which it was often difficult to conceal. From the same audience, who were so clamorous in their demonstrations to the tragedian, 
Elma won a silent respect even more flattering, and to her peculiar temperament far more acceptable. They never broke out to noisy admiration until she had passed from their presence. They never addressed to her an audible criticism, eulogium, or comment. Calanthe is a subordinate character, yet one that enlists sympathy. It is difficult to define the exact order of Elma's scenic talents. Her performances lacked vivid coloring. They might have been deemed cold, but it was a marble coldness of statuesque beauty. They were carved, as it were, in alabaster, but sculpture was not dumb. She never rose out of herself, but she filled her assumed characters with her own inseparable loveliness. If they were narrow, she seemed to compress her nature to enter into their contracted limits, reminding the beholders of a butterfly struggling to force itself into an empty chrysalis shell, but failing to hide its bright tinted wings. She never descended to stage trickeries, nor ever, like Mortimer, courted the applause which she disdained. The extreme polish of her delivery lent one great charm to her personations. Never was the Saxon tongue more musically syllabled than by her lips. Every word was cut fine and sharp, and invested with a value and a meaning which betokened intellect, though unallied with an ardor. The much-abused practice of flinging bouquets at the feet of a favorite performer had not, in those days, reached a height of absurdity. A floral token might fall upon the stage without awakening the suspicion that this was only a portion of the performance, prepared by the manager, possibly by the receiver. In the first act, while Damon and Pythias were conversing, Calanthe stole in upon them. The instant she appeared, a couple of bouquets dropped upon the stage. The one was a magnificent collection of exotics, the other a bunch of woodland violets, the stems of which were confined by a golden arrow. The representative of Pythias gathered up the flowers and presented them to Elma. Mortimer's gaze was fastened upon her as she received them. He detected the involuntary direction of her eyes, though the look was as brief as a flash. That glance had sought the stage box. In the seats nearest to the stage sat young Lord Oranmore and his relative Leonard Edmonton. The fiery eyes of the tragedian rested upon the countenance of the nobleman with an expression which might have been interpreted as wrathful menace. Then he turned them again upon Elma. The bouquets were in her hands, but her face was innocently raised to that of Pythias, who regarded her, saying, By the birth of Venus, when she rose out of the sea, and with her smile did fill the Grecian isles with everlasting verdure, she was not, fresh from the soft creation of the wave, more beautiful than thou. Mortimer's fierce look gradually changed to one of trustful confidence. We pass over the stirring action of the play, which abounds in fine situations. When the curtain fell, Elma found her mother, attired as Mrs. Malaprop, seated in the green room. Her antiquated attendant, Winifred, stood fanning her. The members of the company crowded round, 
with welcomes and kind inquiries. A gleam of the olden light fired in her fading eye. Departed vigor returned her enfeebled frame, and to the voice so faint and hollow for a few hours before, its clear, far-sounding tone was restored. The sensations of the aged actress on the eve of her farewell were so fitly expressed in the touching adieu delivered by John Kimball but a few years previous. As the worn war-horse at the trumpet's sound erects his mane and neighs and paws the ground, disdains the ease his generous lord assigns, and longs to rush on embattled lines, so I, your plaudits ringing in mine ear, can scarce sustain to think our parting near, to think my scenic hour forever past, and that these valued plaudits are my last. Elma could only spend a moment at her mother's side. The young actress was allowed but a brief space to exchange her Grecian costume for the more modern adornments of Lydia Languish. As the comedy of the rivals is deficient in a knave, Ruthman's labors for the night ended with Dionysus. The accomplished stage villain was metamorphosed into the most worthy and devoted of husbands. The welcome which the audience bestowed on Mrs. Ruthven might almost have been said to surpass their tornado-like greeting of the half-idolized tragedian. It was not received by her with Mortimer's scornful hauteur. Blessings be with ye, the best of luck to ye, long life to ye, resounded on every side at her oft-repeated obeisances. The dogberry-like applications of Mrs. Malaprop, who asserts that if she reprehends anything in the world, it is the use of her oracular tongue and a nice derangement of epitaphs, never elicited heartier merriment. As the play progressed, it became apparent that Mrs. Ruthven's suddenly restored powers were but bright flashes of life's expiring flame. During the fifth act, she could not stand without support. She leaned heavily on the arms of the performers who chanced to be nearest to her, and, if the exigencies of the play required them to alter their situations, others took their place. Every moment she grew feebler, and her limbs wholly refused their office. She was placed in a chair and remained seated during the final scene. The actors, regardless of the parts they were representing, gathered affectionately around, fanning her, bathing her brow, making her inhale pungent odors. The comedy was hurried to its conclusion. The curtain fell. The audience received the impression that their favorite was on the verge of a fainting fit produced by fatigue. After a few moments of compassionate silence, the exhausted actress received the usual summons and the eager crowd awaited her last adieu. Mr. Ruthven placed the paper upon which the address was inscribed in her hands. She endeavored to rise, but in vain. Do not make the attempt, remonstrated Mortimer, who had hastened to her side the instant the curtain fell. Sit still, just as you are. Let the curtain be raised, but do not try to stand. Mrs. Ruthven smiled consent. Elma stood beside her mother's chair as the curtain was slowly lifted to the expectant multitude. One loud peal was followed by a silence so profound that the hard-drawn breath of the suffering actress was distinctly audible. 
every ear was strained to catch the last words they might hear from those lips by which they had so often been charmed there was a strange nervous twitching about the mouth in its desperate effort to articulate the eyes that wandered slowly around the theatre with a long last look of regret grew filmy and glassy the face had become thin sharp and ghastly within a few hours the paper dropped from the powerless hand the head drooped slowly to one side and was caught by elma who had fallen upon her knees by her mother's chair a voice reached the audience from behind the scenes let fall the curtain they will never hear her speak again everyone recognized the deep sonorous tones of mortimer many and many a sob broke through the solemn stillness as the curtain like a pall slowly descended and shut out mother and daughter one of them for the last time for this her place would never know her more end of section seventeen